Hey, thank you for downloading The Tully Show. Real quick, before I get into Mark McGrath, thank you for downloading this show. Thank you to everyone who continues to support. The numbers have been great. They've gone up quite a bit ever since the whole thing with SiriusXM went down. I appreciate people still wanting to listen to what I'm doing now that it's just a Tully Show podcast. It is my intention to do at least a show a week. I did miss a show two weeks ago, as you might imagine, got quite a few things going on in my life right now but i do intend to bring you mark mcgrath as often as as you guys seem to want to hear him i do intend to keep on bringing you interesting exciting guests i no longer have a talent relations department that's going to help me with that but i've got ideas about people that i want to bring in and because the numbers have been so good on downloads because so many of you have rated reviewed and subscribed at itunes and wherever else you listen it looks pretty good on paper when I say, hey, you want to come on the Tully show? They look and they go, ooh, this thing's got over a thousand likes or whatever. Sure, I'll talk to that podcast. So thank you for helping me. And in a way, you kind of help yourself because I think that's going to help me keep on bringing in a pretty high caliber of guests so we can keep on doing an okay show here. Thank you to everyone who has signed up for my Patreon. I will quickly remind you, patreon.com slash Mike Tully. At least twice a week, I'm doing Tully time. It's stupid, silly news and headlines we're doing music podcasts we did a ridiculous movie hangout on zoom me and a bunch of subscribers watched the hulk hogan cinematic classic santa with muscles last week so far i've been pleasantly surprised with the patreon experience i hope i believe the subscribers that i have would agree with me so if you want to get in on the party it's podcast jonestown is what we're calling it over there what we have going on patreon.com slash mike tully and of course the jason ellis show The Jason Ellis Show podcast is out now wherever you do your podcasting for free. If you want two additional Jason Ellis shows on a weekly basis, sign up for that Patreon. You can find the Jason Ellis Show tiers and the Jason Ellis tiers, the solo stuff, his awesome world podcast at patreon.com slash ellismate. Thank you for listening. Now on with the show. Okay, you ready to start this show? Coming to you live on tape during week 64 of quarantine from my eight-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California boasting a partially obstructed view of the smog-shrouded urban sprawl of the City of Angels. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, once again, the lead singer of Sugar Ray and the host of Mark McGrath's 120, heard weekends on the 90s on 9 over on Sirius XM. Hello and welcome back, our dear friend, Mark McGrath. Oh, Mike Tully, nowhere I'd rather be than here speaking music with you. And by the way, everybody out there who sends uh, like really wonderful comments on social media or, you know, whatever you have to say, really appreciate it. I love hearing from you guys. It's just great to know that you're connecting to the show. It's just fun. And just, I know I'm sneaking on the Michael show, but it's been a, it's been a blessing and uh, a joy speaking music and hearing the feedback. You know what I mean? We charted. We were on the comedy chart, which is, I thought we were talking serious music here. Somehow we made it on the comedy chart. (laughs) 
But especially given what's going on in my life in the last six weeks or, or so, I'll take it. We were on the charts not uh, not just one day, I think two days in a row. So it wasn't even just that first day pop. It was um, even even the Johnny Come Latelys were enough to keep us in the top 100 of the iTunes comedy podcast charts, which is crazy and cool. And thank you, everybody. Yeah, that's amazing, Michael. And that's a, a, a tribute to you. And I've been on the charts since 2001, so I'm very excited. <laughs> oh, man. So we're on the charts again. <laughs> did not did not realize I was queuing you up for that. Oh yeah, you set me up. You put me down main. I saw that coming down Broadway. Back it up. Back it up. I did see, I love when all of the artists that I follow, uh, particularly the ones who I know a little bit in real life, you put up your thing from Spotify where this many million streams, this many million hours of people listening to Sugar Ray. I know I get a very, very, very small amount of that with this podcast through Spotify, but that's got to feel great every single time to know that that stuff is still resonating around the world. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty incredible when you look at the numbers. It's really an honor to see you go around the world. Obviously, you know, we were in 92 countries. We, there were 64 million streams or something. So it's pretty incredible, the algorithms and how they break down all the facts. Uh, we, we had never been played in Russia before. It was our biggest. I, I, it was crazy. Who didn't think a, new, a band from Newport Beach, California would be big in Moscow, you know? So somehow we stuck into like some Russian beach pepper sublime 311 you know genre over there and it be that was our third biggest country i think last year so and my point is spotify does these incredible analytics that are really interesting to read and you'll see every band post their things so yeah you're kind of proud of it you know do you know who you you mentioned uh pepper and and sublime 311 do you know if you look at sugar ray on a spotify who the if you like this you might also like dot 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 bands are for you yeah oh yeah they're everyone's you'd think they'd be it is smash mouth Everclear. if you like sugar ray you may like gin blossoms matchbox 20 google dolls vertical really? horizon oh, oh yeah it's, it's just that, it's that little 90s late 90s sort of a wheelhouse that we were in and they're also 75 percent of the bands that would play my 90s tour so there's a lot yes. of synergy there between the bands yeah, right. not a lot of connection between us and like, uh, let's say, Iron and Wine. You know, I see. Yeah. You're not. You're not. I, on, I pulled that on my ass, man. Jesus. You're not on the Portishead playlist. Yeah. <laughs> see, that's funny because the I never really thought about what bands your band relates to. The first. The, the Russian cohorts of yours made perfect sense to me. I don't think of you as sounding all that similar. I know that you were of a piece and listened to by the same types of people back then as the second batch. Refresh my memory. Vertical Horizon. Um, this song, uh, 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 she's everything you want and everything you need. I'm doing it no justice, but everything, everything you want, which is number mm -hmm. one song. And then there's oh, okay. a song, you're a god and I am not. And it's a big song. Remember, she's everything you want. And oh, yeah. You know, I'm like just doing a... no justice because I can't. No, so, I know. got it. I get more yeah. of like, like, like a Duncan Sheik kind of thing. Very much Duncan Sheik, Lifehouse-esque type moment there. And it went to number one. So it was a gigantic mm -hmm. song. I think a lot of our bands, I, I feel that. I mean, and look, the, the, the analytics prove that if you like this, you probably have Sugar Ray. You know, those aren't just guesses. Hey, we think you no. might like, you know, right said yes. Fred. I mean, they're really, they're guesses based on numbers. There's not some guy in the back just going, hey, I'm a music nerd. I think you'd like this. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? So 
They're, they're they just hire, hire a guy from a, ruse, a used record store to just sit there and <laughs> smoke cigarettes. And so a guy from Aaron's records closed. He's back there going, yeah, I think you'd like this. But uh, yeah, so yeah. There's, a, there's, a, there's a method to the madness. Um, I think it's a great way for people to be able to listen to music. Well, sure. And you have to love the fact that there are, because of algorithms and because of the ease of use, there are generations of people who will keep discovering your music. It's pretty crazy bands used to just kind of go away if they weren't one of the top 10 bands of an era or something and and now you're in the mix and will remain in the mix for for generations yeah yeah i mean we were fortunate enough to have a couple of number one songs and number one songs never went away you know so they would always be feeding a, a genre you know i kind of look at us as like the herman's hermits or freddie and the dreamers from the 60s you know like you know had a couple of hits, not gonna hurt anybody, and went away. You know what I mean? So I think our songs without Spotify would have kept going in the traditional conventional sense of the way music was delivered. I mean, we get played on K Earth now. K Earth oh. <laughs> is a C. Yeah, no, K Earth. The weirdest thing is they're coming up. Stones, Beatles, and Sugar Ray. I mean, even I feel bad for listeners. But K Earth is the oldie station out here in Los Angeles. I believe they still employ a DJ named Charlie Tuna. Uh, I believe they do as well. And he's been there since like 68. You know, I mean, yeah. the guy's OG, wonderful guy. I've talked a few times. But, it, you know, that was the station that that was for the Beatles, the Stones, the Herman's Hermits, the, you know, uh, the Gary and the Playboys. Like, we were never part of that, you know. But they always, there's always an oldie station in every city convention before Spotify and all that. So, Though, yes, we, we would not be on the pop stations. We would still have found a place. But Spotify, you're right, is a broader, bigger, vast ocean of what do you want? You want Rockabilly from 59 or are you into number one songs of the 90s? You know, it's, it's everything, you know? So today I want to take a journey back in time. And it is crazy. I don't believe it as the words form in my mouth that we're talking about 40 years ago from where we sit right now in 2020, December of 1980. That is that is 40 years ago. I thought it would be fun to look at the music that was released that month as the new releases of the day. I can, I can remember this is still when, you know, I'm going to a record store and humming a tune that I've heard on the radio for the snobby guy behind the counter. <laughs> So that he can sell me a 45 record in a, in a paper sleeve with Scotty Brothers or Arista or whatever, and then go home and try to find one of those dumb little yellow disc things. So I, What were those called? Do we, do we, they had to have a name. The little thing you put in to play on your record player, the little keyhole thing. Yep. That, 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 you know, Gary Baba Booey Delabate wears a gold chain with that as the emblem. That's really dating yourself in uh, these days. I mean, it's got to have a name. I've always wondered, and I'd love to know it. The RCA Corporation brought it to market. I don't believe I ever knew that a 45 RPM adapter is known as a spider. A spider makes sense for the way it looks, but I am shocked. You and I have I never heard that. Shocked. I thought it was. I thought it was going to ring a bell. No. I've Nothing. never heard it called no. that. It makes sense. Mm -hmm. Never heard it. And I had a million of them like you did. Yeah, exactly. So today we're going to take a look back at the heyday of the spider <laughs> elsewhere in the world in December of 1980. Uh, cable TV is taking off. The Bravo Network launches it with a tribute to composer Aaron Copland. 
Oh, of course. Nowadays, it's just of course. the real house, the real housewives of of, of Schenectady. You're telling me. You're telling me. <laughs> you're telling me Bravo debuted in December of 1980. That's what the internet told me. I, I I'm without words. I I don't know what to say. Magnum P.I. kicked off an eight-year run. Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor in Stir Crazy, which I did not realize was directed by Sidney Poitier. Raging Bull came out and the first commercial flights from the U.S. to the People's Republic of China. That is all happening then in music news to huge pieces of tragic news on the 7th of December, 1980. Darby Crash of the Germs committed suicide. Yep. And one day later, I don't know that Darby Crash was going to make all that many headlines, given where they were in the music stratosphere at that point in time, but definitely overshadowed a day later when in on the Upper East Side, uh, West Side of New York, John Lennon was killed. I am old enough to remember where I was. I was watching Monday Night Football, and they broke into the broadcast to say tonight, and you know, in in, in Central Park. John Lennon shot kill. And I just remember just going, I was you know, 12 years old. I, I was just blown away, blown away by that. And of course, leave it to the Darby Crash, you know, kind of known as, you know, a, a, definitely a figure, but something of a, a, a figure that was, you know, just never got the respect due or whatever to completely have his moment outshined by, you know, the very thing he was rebelling against. You know, the bloated corporate rock world that the Beatles became part of, let's be honest. And then John Lennon, thanks for playing, Darby. We'll, we'll, we'll get you into the decline post-release. You won't even get to see, you know. <laughs> That's right. John Lennon, I think I've come to appreciate more in the last few years, had a much better solo career than I gave him credit for. And his last album, I think... I'm not even sure that it came out before he passed away. I think that the, maybe it's the double fantasy thing. Yeah, I think uh, it was posthumous as well. I do, but I think it might have come around a little before. I don't know. I know it had its yeah. run after its death as well. But I just don't know if it came out like a month before. Because what did what did Mark David Chapman make him sign? Wasn't it double fantasy? Oh, that's a very good question. I have absolutely no idea what Mark David Chapman asked him to sign. But yeah, like um, watching the wheels. That's watching all. Watching the wheels, woman. Right. I mean, come on. He was he was in really good musical shape, and I think he had just taken a break, and that's what watching the wheels is really all about. Yeah. Is that doing he's just sitting there watching the wheels yeah. go around and around. But he was creatively not finished because that's some of his strongest solos yeah. solo stuff he, at, the, at the very he was end. Just living life, you know, what, you know, people say I'm crazy doing what I'm doing, just watching, right. just doing nothing, soaking up the whole thing. Well, Paul McCartney had massive success with Wings, which, let's be honest, was a band, but that's a solo McCartney project when you think about it. And I, I love yes. Wings. There'll be fighting words here if you think Lennon's solo career was bigger than Wings. But that's just me. I, I, I look at that as a Paul McCartney solo career, even though it was under the guise of wings, I think just to bring Linda along for the ride, you know? And yeah, just... I don't I don't think I don't think you're giving Linda's vision nearly enough credit here. <laughs> Did you hear that tape of her isolated vocals? Did you ever hear that where they kind of the na 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 the the Hey Judes? There's a few of them, I think, too. Yeah. Uh, hey, she she she, she was she she sounded like she was having a great time up there on stage. For people who don't know, easy enough to find people. Some yeah. cruel, cruel bastards have isolated Linda McCartney's vocals oh, and. <laughs> 
but then there's Yoko's work that you know it's 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 for an acquired taste as well. So not too late for those two to uh, do it. Oh, it is too late for those to do it. I yeah, it might be too late. <laughs> Let's all due respect. Not too late for a mashup, I guess. No, mashups are always, be per- always cool. particularly sadistic on YouTube. Okay, so we're taking a look back at the top releases of December 1980, and it is a banner month for music. There's a couple of curiosities I think are worth pointing out that people will not have uh, remembered. But first up for the big releases, this time 40 years ago, December 1980, everyone will, of course, know this. Such an odd piece of music for you're 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 the Flash Gordon people and Queen are I guess a fairly obvious choice at least in retrospect, and then they come back and you go what is that on every every twenty third note you guys say Flash like why why did it need to be this it works but why did it need to be this complicated that must have been the most infuriating pre-recording rehearsal ever of just tell me somebody raised their hand when we say flash again <laughs> also how about the back and forth between the label and the band how many wrongs did it take to get that right what it sounds like to me queen trying to write a song for a superhero as opposed to like you yeah. know we got down to like in in the 90s with i don't want to miss a thing that was a superhero song like you know, a kiss from a rose by Seal. It sounds like Queen, with all this talent, trying to write this magnus opus about a superhero. So I, I, I have a real disconnect with that. I don't love it. You know, I, I certainly would, would never listen to it again unless you put it on right now. You know what I mean? And so I, I don't know. I just the movie was kind of a stinker. You, you know, do uh, you know how well the movie did, Mike? Uh, I'll have to look that up. It's definitely aged into a classic. I think it's one of these things that has become something that's understood to be a timeless classic, and the Queen score is understood to be a part of that, despite the fact that it may not have actually resonated on that level at the right. time. It's taken on... I mean, the, what was the movie where... Um, oh, it was the Seth MacFarlane talking... Was it a talking dog movie? Where all of a sudden they're just hanging out doing coke with Flash. Oh from yeah, the Flash yeah, yeah, movie yeah. In, the, in the present day, where he just did the Family Guy. Yeah, race. no, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> so definitely hit the pantheons of the uh, uh, Americana, if you will. But that that I guess that was just more of a soundtrack album as opposed to Queen trying to make songs, correct? Because there's not another song off that record that was released as a single. Was that? Are we going in? Was this top ten for that year? Or is that, or was that just released that year? I have no idea. No, this is to me. This is just new and no, and noteworthy from the month of December, nineteen eighty. Got it. Got it. So it was released the, the month of December for the soundtrack to the movie that was obviously probably released similar, if not a little bit earlier. Yeah, I, I don't think. I, ironically, I think it's a band, Queen, listening to John Williams doing the Star Wars thing. Precisely. Right, and trying to do their John Williams. Let's win an Oscar. Uh, we're beyond Queen. This is too Queen is too Queen of all bands. It's too uh, it's too elementary for what we're trying to do for a soundtrack for this big opus. Flash Gordon. I think that's what we're hearing there. You know, because I don't think there's singles on that. No, I think you're right. So 
Fellini, the famous Italian filmmaker, optioned the Flash Gordon rights but never made the film. George Lucas, this is a pretty well-known thing, attempted to make a Flash Gordon film before he just gave up and made Star Wars. Amazing how different history would have played out had that uh, taken place. Sergio Leone, the, the godfather of spaghetti westerns, was supposed to make Flash Gordon. Everybody legendary was supposed to make it. Wow! And in the end, a guy named Mike Hodges directed it. And yes, on the coattails of not only Star Wars, but also Superman and the first Star Trek motion picture, not a critical success upon its release um its cult status led it to feature heavily in ted is the movie that we were referring to i don't see anything That's in it. here about about box office i don't think it was a humongous success yeah i mean it might have made its money back and probably since video and all that's probably gone into the black it was budgeted between 20 and 27 million and it made 27.1 million at the box office Wow. So, turned a profit by the time it got to TV. <laughs> Definitely by now. What if that record went platinum or gold? Probably, you know, like it probably did. I mean, it probably went gold at least. It seems like there would have been some kids feeling a little let down when you get that and you go, oh, they're just going to keep saying, they're just going to keep saying Flash over and over, aren't they? Well, I think I was one of those kids because you're coming off of Crazy Little Thing Called Love. You're coming off of Bohemian Rhapsody. You're coming off of, uh, you know, let's be honest, the, the, the apex of the creative... Uh, portion of queen's career and you get that i remember they were trying to force that on pop radio and we're like ah man there's this too much this is too creative for me you know give me some disco i don't even i can't sing along i literally don't know when to say flash it got to 23 on the u.s billboard 200 the the album this is and made it up to number 10 in the uk so that's about what you would yeah. That's about what you would expect. It was certified gold in the UK, which in those days was 100,000 units. So I think the public responded as they as they were supposed to. As they were. Gordon uh, yeah. I think they heard Flash and go, okay, there's going to be a whole lot of this. We're cool. We'll yeah. wait for the next record. Right. This next album um, that came out in December of 1980, I think probably sold a little bit more than 100,000 copies at least. Take a listen back to this. I mean, I, I could still listen to that every day, over and over. Still gets me hype. Still makes me feel good. Still blown away how a band can lose such a an amazing, charismatic front man like Bon Scott. Come back a year later with arguably one of the best records of all time with the new singer. It's it's it's. I mean, there's two bands that have been successful with the change of singers like that. You know, ACDC being one, and uh, Van Halen being the other. I mean, they did the impossible and came back with such a but, great record, you know? Yeah. It's a pretty good comparison, right? Because people who are really purists about the thing, and not just the snobs who are like, well, I like this guy because he was there first. I don't think anybody is going to debate that, with all due respect to Brian Johnson, ACDC lost a little bit of the flair, a little bit of the danger, a little bit of the unpredictability that Bon Scott brought, but he also made them, and I don't think he's a huge sellout. I think it came from his soul, but he made them more of a dependable, commodifiable 
put them in a beer commercial yeah. kind of product. And that and that's what Sammy did, all of those same things with Van Halen. I guess the difference is the breakdown in ACDC is that they sold with Brian Johnson in a way that they never did with Bon Scott, despite having been very successful. Whereas Van Halen also, I think was a, was a, at least as big, if not bigger of an act when they were also in their wilder, slightly more credible days with David Lee Roth as well. No, I, I would say those are very uh, astute and insightful comments. The difference between the two, I would say is there's no divisive, uh, you know, I think people love, Bon Scott and they love Brian Johnson. There's extreme divisiveness between Sammy fans and David Lee fans. In fact, there's an extreme divisiveness between Sammy and David Lee. So there's, I think, you know, people say, you know, pre-Hagar, post-Hagar, Van Hagar. I mean, there's a real division of those two bands. The amazing point in the comparison between the two bands is that they both had success, incredible success with uh, two different singers. I think, and you're right, uh, Brian Johnson, ironically, cleaned up ACDC's image uh, enough to take them out of the punk rock sort of dangerous biker sort of, you know, nether world of, of like Motorhead and then brought them into the stadiums. And now who's to say Von Scott wasn't going to do that because they were right. You know, they were getting into their real rhythm as songwriters. I mean, I don't think Brian Johnson came up with the riffs. Back in Black no. is, a, is a number one riff with no one singing on it. It's just such a killer song. So I think Bond Scott might have found his way. I don't think it would have been as big with Bond, but I think it would have still been big. But Brian Johnson just had the chops, the melody, and the band was just ready to take it to the next level. And it's a very extremely difficult thing that they did. Probably the anomaly. Not many bands have done that, you know, really. But on their way up, on their ascension to stardom, changed singers and didn't miss a beat. Yeah, and they did it. Quickly, too. So Back in Black, You Shook Me All Night Long, Hell's Bells, Have a Drink on Me, Shoot to Thrill, Rock and Roll Ain't Noise Pollution, and Give the Dog a Bone. That's tracks one through seven. That's the greatest hits record. It is. It is. It's one of these. Yeah, there's a couple bands where the album kind of just does double as that. The Violent Femmes also always come to mind. Guns Guns and Roses, Appetite for Destruction to me, is a greatest hits record. Yeah, yeah, that's right. People... I, I, I just feel like mourning was something that you were supposed to process a little bit quicker <laughs> before my time. That, <laughs> well, the it has was in my life. Black. It had the back of black single, so there's a little bit of a dark undertone, a little bit of that that uh, that you know that UK bit of a dark humor that they use. You know what I mean? And yeah. I don't know. Sometimes you get sometimes your tribute and how you uh, you grieve is all different. They're a rock and roll band. What do you think? They would, I'm sure they said. What would Bond want us to do? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Get, right. your mic, get your lily asses out there and rock. On another episode of the show that you weren't around for, I think I was talking about the Doors, the remaining three Doors released. like Their their first album without Jim that they sang on came out like three months after he died. It's just crazy <laughs> to me that the, the, the wheels of the record industry just demanded that god that's we feel really really terrible send him a wreath and then get him back in the studio it's uh oh oh i'll give you the best example the uh the 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 tour the day the music died the big bopper richie valens buddy holly that tour didn't end dude i know kept going listen this show business not show friends man you know what i'm saying and the irony of the whole thing dude is that once once the prime mover dies 
Sometimes the estate is involved in the decisions. No, just keep the tour going. It's our, we're we're going to yeah. get, we'll take care of Jim over here. Uh, just keep that tour running. So there's all sorts of weird dynamics and only makes sense to the band. But the difference is you've got a fandom outside that you still want to make sure that you're taken care of and, uh, mm-hmm. and are sensitive to their needs to a point with the information they need to know. Other than that, you know, it's a personal relationship, you know? Yep. Next up in our December 1980 classic releases, plenty of bands have had albums and a number of bands reach the the reach for the iron, uh, rather the golden ring with a double album. Off the top of your head, Mark, how many bands can you think of who have released a triple album? Oh, boy. Uh, you got The Clash. Uh, I believe Neil Diamond did. Uh, not not a lot, not not a bit. Yeah. Uh, I believe the I believe the uh, the Minutemen did out here in uh, out here in Southern uh, California. Did, was that one more than thirty minutes long? No, I think they. <laughs> I think they tried, I think they came in forty two minutes with uh, with three with three CDs. But yeah, no, it's uh, did, did Husker do do it? I, mean, I think there's a few punk bands that tried to do it for the shits and giggles of it all, you know. Yeah, that barely that barely counts. You hit the nail on the head with the first one. I think the most famous triple album in history is most likely Sandinista from The Clash, which came out this time 40 years ago. Uh, to refresh your and everybody else's memory, we get... Such a great song, man. Still, there's something emotes in that song to me. I mean, I know it's, you know, somebody's got murdered, but like hearing that, you know, mixing on, got murdered, hearing that high, and the tone of the guitar in that, there's something so just pleasing about that song, man. I never get sick of that one. That is my tune when it comes down to it from The Clash. I've got a half a dozen favorites, but I think that if, if I have a Desert Island 45, I'm going to take my my spider and that song and bring it out to <laughs> the Desert Island. That just, it, there's a real vulnerability yes. to it, and it's a, it's a great pop song, and the end of it is a, is a terrific capper. I don't know what that... Yeah, right? ...thing is. That's... that's that's not quite in time because these were the days oh, where, the, you know, nowadays that would have been perfectly in sync and it wouldn't have been half as fun. Somebody was there blowing a Vuvuzela or whatever the heck it was <laughs> almost in time. But you know what's so great? The lyrics are the way out of you know, those shouts. Are they screams? Are they drunk? You know, so that kind of fits to what the lyric is, which is great. Another example of, ironically, a band that got started to fight against the bloat of corporate rock that released one of the most bloated records of all time. Sandinista would have been the greatest one record, you know, it would be right there in the pantheon of great Clash records, but because there's so much crap on some of them, with all due respect, I love the Clash, you know, but there's just a lot of songs that aren't that great on that. And maybe like, you know, CBS made a deal with them, said, all right, as long as you let this come out at Christmas, we'll let you put all this shit out on a three album uh, record, which was so, uh, you know, such the anomaly back then, especially from a punk rock band, because the Clash was still trying to break. Don't forget, they were just coming off those Bond shows in New York, you know, and they were still, they were just trying to be the superstars that they were in the uh, in the in the big cities. 
giant in LA, giant in New York, couldn't sell a record in Des Moines, you know? This is before Rock the Casbah. Oh, yeah. This is before Combat Rock came out in 82, I think, which was the, what finally came the record that blew them up into opening for U2 and became the band that they all hated each other and Mick left and, you know, uh, look, we've become what we hate type thing. But Sandinista to CBS was the record they were trying to capitalize on all the, you know, they played 35 shows in, in the, at, at Bonds down there in the, in the city. And, you know, they were, they were just going to be the next big thing. And then it released this bloated record. They didn't know what singles to put out. It was just a mess. And indeed, they, the label made them lower their rate, I think, because it cost more That's to right. produce the thing. And they were only going to sell it for so much. The band had to actually agree to a lower rate for that. And you can read the interviews with Joe Strummer where he goes, well, you know, a lot of people think what they think about Sandinista, but I still hear from punks that'll uh, fire up some meth and listen to <laughs> all six sides on repeat. So maybe Sandinista worked a little bit better as a complete piece than the rest of you are willing to recognize. Yeah, you know, there, uh, man, and I think they also took some publishing and writing hits on that because you only get paid for how many, like, if you, if, I think you get paid for 11 songs on a record or something, forgive me if, if I, if I uh, am saying this wrong, but after that, it's all fluff and circumstance, so you're not getting a, more royalty because you give someone 18 songs, you know, unless that you're in cahoots with the label, there's some weird, uh, you know, uh, profit dynamic with how many songs you put on a record where it just doesn't matter anymore and you're just kind of hurting your own bottom line. That's right. Yeah, I think you've already alluded to the whole bonus track phenomenon yes, from 80s albums, exactly. which had something to do with that. <clears throat> exactly. So oddly enough, out of all the bands you could have brought up when I asked you about triple albums, one of them is the next band I am going to play. This is not a triple album. I'm led to believe that in December of 1980, the Minutemen made their debut with an EP called Paranoid Time. I'm sure you are familiar with this. We'll see how, uh, maybe we can play the whole thing. Yeah. 40 seconds long. <laughs> The Maze by the Minutemen. I had a friend in high school who used to always tell me that I didn't get it because I didn't get the Minutemen. And isn't it amazing that they're called the Minutemen and their songs are all a minute? I'm going to put you on the spot. Make the case for what we just listened to there, Mark. I can't because I'm right there with you. I thought of a lot of discord and like like atonal punk rock that I was never a fan of, and especially in 1980. That sounded like yeah. it came from Mars to me because... I was coming from the disco world and things are upbeat and melodic. So I can't say, man, I was a gigantic Miniman fan. I know people that swear and pray to the altar of Mike Watt and yep. uh, the bassist. Uh, he, he's, the, he's the star of the band. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Mike Watt and D Moon is no longer with us. He was a, a, a big gentleman. He was killed in a car crash, unfortunately. Uh, um, and uh, the drummer uh, got the blonde, big bangs. Uh, but they were a, a big SST label, stalwarts out here. Um, real, right. real uh, heroes of the DIY ethic. Probably one of the first to really do it. Was all part of that black flag, do it yourself, figure out how to tour. You know, wheat paste up the posters. Don't cry about being in the back of a minivan in 40 degree weather, sitting on crates. You know, that old school punk rock ethos that I believe Mike Watts still holds on to this day, which is, I mean, they, I think they have a whole thing called like charge econo or go econo, you know, econo, economy, that's their whole thing. 
That's right. There was a a documentary about the phrase yeah. that had, that had the name of the phrase neither of us can think of right now. That's right. Yeah, Mike, somebody, Mike, it Econo's in it. Like go Econo, charge Econo, or something. I mean, you know, not Chicano, but like go Econo, like Econo line van or Economy. And I'm sure you're listening to the homes are screaming us going idiots. It, it's like, but there is some phrase that they kind of rallied by. So. Um, yeah, the documentary was called We Jam Econo. We Jam Econo, that's out. it. That's and it. I think that may have been when he was with Firehose. That was his next thing, right? Firehose was his next thing as well. And, and I, I know Pearl Jam kind of adapted Mike Watt. I think he's done some gigs with Pearl Jam when uh, the bass player yeah. couldn't make it. So uh, he's gotten his due propers. I think he was in a band with John Doe from X for a while. I think the Minutemen were very much like Hooster Do. Uh, they were kind of the West Coast answer to Hooster Do. Uh, or they would have been for sure. I think there would have been more melody. There would have been more songwriting. That's the first EP. I mean, the records got a lot better, you know. Uh, do you know if that was on SST or was that on like Flipside? Or do we know what that was on Slash? Yeah, I do. And it's a great story. It was the second ever release on SST, which was founded by uh, Greg Ginn and Chuck from Black Flag. I'm assuming the first was a Black Flag release. So the story is Black Flag opened for uh, uh, um, Minutemen opened for Black Flag in San Pedro one night. And Greg Ginn on the spot says, we can put out a record for you guys. So they just headed over to his studio immediately and plugged in the microphones. And six minutes and 31 seconds later, (laughs) they have paranoid time. You know what? God bless them. Now, look, both bands are from San Pedro, too. So that's that's kind of, there's some pots go there. Uh, yeah. and, and who would know that they'd be classics, you know? I want to you know what I'm curious at. SST, what is that catalog worth? Is it worth $30 million or is it worth $4 million? I, I don't know, you know? Because they, they had the first Black Flag EP, Jealous Again, right? The first, Keith Morris was the first singer. We became the singer for Circle Jerks, as we all know. I'm pretty sure they have an EP out with him, but I don't think it's Jealous Again. I think Jealous Again was Ron Reyes, but I'm but I'm uh, I might be mistaken. So, so I'm going through uh, through the through the '80s here. We get all the way up to Screaming Trees and Negative Land and Descendants and Dinosaur Junior. You got Bad Brains. You got Meat Puppets. You got Sonic Youth, you have a lot, a lot, a lot of things that have endless indie credibility, but it, to, to your specific point, in terms of the value, not that that is the only thing that matters about this catalog, of course, I don't think there was ever the one thing, unless, literally, unless the Minutemen releases were the ones that had the songs, oh, I'm sorry, the um, the Meat Puppets releases were the ones that had the songs that Kurt Cobain did because it's crazy. The haves and have nots in music, this entire catalog might be worth twice as much if it had the two meat puppet songs that Kurt Cobain did on one live unplugged album that one time. That could be the game changer. You're you're, you're very, you're very right. But I would say just by the bands you mentioned, you know, uh, Dinosaur Jr., Sonic Youth. And I think most of those bands had their major success when they jumped to major labels. That means SST either got paid or had a percentage of those major labels. So if you add that value, I would say SST's worth $20 million if it's worth a penny. Black Flag released Nervous Breakdown, then the Minutemen thing came out, then Black Flag released Jealous Jealous Again. again. 
So yeah, Nervous and, Breakdown is the first release. Got, got it. That's with Keith singing, correct? I would absolutely have to think so. Oh, yeah. wait, well, no, is that the original, original singer? The Keith guy who's was in... the first singer of Black Flag. Keith Morris was. I don't know if he recorded the... I, I, I should know. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I'm going to have Nervous Breakdown. Yeah, no, that's Keith Morris for sure. Yeah, he, he's okay. on that. Yeah. I have no idea what I'm talking about here, but yeah, Keith Morris is on there. Who's the guy in the middle that's in Decline of the Western Civilization? That was Ron Reyes, who there was their singer on Jealous Again. You're jealous yes. again. Yeah, you're just friend. So he's there, that dude. And yep. then uh, and then they were having problems, and um, their guitar, their rhythm guitar player's name escapes me right now. Des Kadena. Uh, Des Kadena. He, he sang for a little bit, uh, mm-hmm. because Ron bailed in the middle of a tour or something like that. As they got to the Peppermint Lounge in New York, the DC punks came up, Ian McKay, Henry Rollins. Henry Rollins jumped off stage and sang, I think, Nervous Breakdown. Uh, and uh, Black Flag was on their way to, I think, DC again and said, Henry, you want to ride? He said, sure. My, my shift at haagen doesn't start until you know, <laughs> six hours. I'm not even kidding you. And yeah. they go, do you want to be the singer of Black Flag? Des wants to go back to rhythm guitar. And they just put Henry in a band. They went home, and he became a singer of Black Flag. And I think one of his first gigs was the Cuckoo's Nest out here in Costa Mesa in 81, I'm going to say. So, right. They had, well, yeah, they released an album with him. Yeah. By, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, so, six Pack. Damage. No, Damage. In 79, they released an album with Keith Morris as their singer. In 80, they released an album with that Ron guy. In 81, they released a song with that, an album with Des Kadena and... Uh, by 82, Henry Rollins is the lead singer on TV Party. Yeah. Yeah, but Damage Damage was Henry's first record, right? It had, uh, you know, uh, Depression. Yeah, right. Okay, so he's also, so in the space of three years, they have four singers. Yeah. Exactly. But, think of, I want to talk about rotating singers. I like all the material done by all four of those singers, you know, so it's pretty incredible. I mean, you think a band could survive four lead singers in a two-year period. It's It's incredible, you know? And there's not even the shitty one. Like, it's, no. not, it's not just like that was the guy who was just there for a week and that was funny because he had a silly haircut or something. Like, right. No, they yeah. all made a profound impact on the history of Black Flag and getting them off the ground. So let's move on to some stuff that was popping in the mainstream. This is uh, now for something completely different. When some people can sing and there's people that can really sing and that man can sing did he ever do that with peter satara because i think if steve winwood and peter satara were on the same like animals would come running unicorns <laughs> i think i think right, he's so a little more bluesy influence you know satara is straight down adult contemporary lane you know he's the like michael mcdonald's the voice yes. of yacht rock peter satara is the voice of adult contemporary but Steve Winwood, Steve Winwood had more of a bluesy thing coming from traffic and blind faith and all that. You know, he he really yes. had a when you first heard the early Steve, I mean, it sounded like, you know, some black dude from Mississippi singing. He had such a tone and resonance to his uh, bluesiness, to his voice. It was, it was I can't believe a 19-year-old, 20-year-old kid singing this from the England, you know. 
So for people who don't know, and I'm not a classic rock guy, I, I know about it by reputation. I can't say I'm familiar with the music, but to me, Steve Winwood is back in the high life. That's what he was in my childhood. He had been a, an absolute prodigy who shows up as a teenage multi-instrumentalist and proceeds to, you know, there's like that little, if you make a Venn diagram of like the Eric Clapton's and the George Harrison's and the Steve Winwood, and at some point or another, every single one of them was in a band that had a name and has an album, the Blind Faiths, the Traffics, the Creams and what have you. Winwood's one of those guys. And to me, this album which is called Ark of a Diver and the single which was his first big solo hit while you see a chance is very um striking to me because the 60s are over the 70s are ending and we know looking back what 80s pop is going to come to be so you kind of can't help but look at it and hear the sound that is to follow but in the mid in the meantime it's the last gasp of pop music that is intended to be pop music that's still made by real instrument uh, with real instruments, still made by humans, still made by people who are amazing instrumentalists in their own right. And you can hear the eighties coming that to me sits very firmly in yacht rock. And I don't know if I'm supposed to hear a guy who is creatively compromising or not. Cause to me, if you're all about classic rock and then we're going to get to back in the high life, even though I think it is, sort of objectively good music. It was also made to be successful on MTV and in and, and his radio. I'm led to believe Steve Winwood, Steve Winwood owned some, uh, owed some albums to his label, was just chilling at home, was in no hurry, and they go, hey, dude, you owe us stuff. Go make something. So that's not the kind of guy who's motivated to go in and sell out. That's a guy who had to be cajoled to even get into the studio. I have to believe that this is actually coming from his soul. This guy who had been classic rock bluesy dude, where his muse led him in 1980, was very accessible, listenable, your mom can dance to it, pop music. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you because he'd been to the 60s and 70s, so it was like rebel rouser days were kind of over. And such a profound songwriting talent is hard to be denied. So what, we're making a genre shift here? No problem. I, I got to see a chance to take it. You know, I, I, I can build a song. I'm such a fine craftsman. I can navigate the waters of disco rock and soon to becoming yacht rock, no problem, with a little new wave influence and, and do it you know, effortlessly. And oh, wait, do you need a record? Christmas is coming. I can come down off my castle and deliver one in, in, in about a month or so. You know, And I think you're entirely spot on with that. And I think his, you know, there's guys that just always have the credentials that, all right, come on in the party. And Stevie Winwood's one of those guys. Clapton's one of those guys. You know, no matter what the landscape is changing aesthetically of music, uh, in terms of oral sculpture of the music, Steve Winwood's always going to be invited to the party because his legacy is just so, it's, 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 it's you know, it, it's so perfect. You know, it, it's hard to argue with. That's right. Uh, I would say none of those things about this next artist right here, although this guy is... Maybe my personal favorite figure from the entire punk rock world. Definitely the first wave of it. I'll be curious to see if you know who this is. You either will or you won't. This is another album. Came out in 
Does that mean anything to you? I, it sounds like Tom Petty. Did. <laughs> I don't think that's a crazy thing to say. And instead, that was uh, a trying to remain relevant and in the game, Stiv Baders of the Dead Boys. Oh, I was going to say, you know, I, seriously, it sounded like Stiv, you know, that Dead Boys snarl. Yeah. But it just, it didn't sound like, it, it sounded very Tom Petty to me at that point. And I'm like, I didn't, I, what I was missing was the punk rock credentials, but I never thought Sid Vader's having a record out in December of 1980 would be making it to our space that we're talking about. You know, so I'm I'm a fan. A uh, sonic producer to me is, oh, is yeah. and it's not that was by was it Rocket from the I always forget because there's Rocket from the Crypt and there's Rocket from the Moon or whichever. They're not the San Diego one. The other one, the Cleveland one, they actually originally yeah. reduce uh, recorded sonic producer that young loud and snotty album to me is that's the 177 punk album i guess as a contrarian that just felt like the sex pistols were shoved down my throat and the clash and the ramones and i found young loud and snotty by myself that i I felt like it could kind of be mine they're a joke they're a little bit of clowns i mean i know that they weren't posers i know that they too were legitimately um you know, cutting themselves open with broken beer bottles for absolutely no reason. So I don't want to say that they were posers in that way, but they they were kind of the second wave of bands going, oh, is this a thing? We can do this thing. Let's let let's let's see if we can get in this punk party as well. And this is him trying to crash into the '80s thing, having not really made it as the the '70s guy in any mainstream way. Right. Exactly. Now that's a Sid Bader solo record, correct? Yes. Right. So he would he was. This was the bridge to the Lord's New Church that, uh, mm-hmm. but you know, in terms of attitude and frontman, Sid Bader's was tough to beat. You know, he, he, he was amazing. The Dead Boys were great. You know, you're right. They, they came from Cleveland, so there's a real rock and roll vibe to them as opposed to a punk rock vibe. Real sleazy, which you always yeah. love the sleazy rock and roll, the LA Guns thing, Fashion Puss Cat. So do I. I do. You know, that do. speaks to me. That's always spoken to me. And then they went to New York and kind of got their punk chops and all that. Uh, and then Sid Vader's decided to go out with Martha Quinn from MTV and the whole. Did he? You don't know that? They Sid, were a thing. When Sid Vader's died, Sid Vader's got hit by a car, you know, in Paris. Yes. And he said, "Ah, oh, I don't feel so good. I'm going to take a nap in the hotel real quick." Never yeah, I'll woke- be fine. They, they, they said you got to go to the hospital. And he goes, "Ah, I'll be fine. I'll walk it off." And he yeah, goes home and does. So take right, a yeah. nap. I'll see you at the show tonight. He never woke up again. He was going out with Martha Quinn, the VJ from MTV at that time, brother. Wow. Yeah. The Martha Quinn that I got to spend a little bit of time around a few times through Sirius XM did not seem like somebody who had a dead boy in her past. Go, who good knew? for you, Martha Quinn. Do you remember the Mojo Nixon song? I, I want to be stuffing uh, Martha's mother. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Do you remember that? Mojo Nixon. I, he's a well, San Diego uh, alt-Americana rock guy, but he had a... It, it, I believe it was on MTV. It was a little bit of a novelty hit uh, during that Dead Milkman um, punk rock girl phase. I believe uh, Mojo Nixon had Martha. I would be stuffing uh, Martha. I want to be stuffing Martha's muffin. That was the name of the song, and it got on MTV because MTV had a sense of humor. I remember, and uh, clearly so did Martha Quinn, that uh, Mojo Nixon had a song called "Don Henley Must Die," that he retired. Yeah. <laughs> That he retired when he was playing it in a club and out of nowhere, Don Henley hopped on stage when he was playing it and duetted on it. And he's like, well, I can't play that song anymore if Don Henley was cool enough to come and do that. I mean, look, that is so off brand for Don Henley to do. 
You know I, what I mean? Normally, Don Heather, we go write a number one song about how awful you were. But you know what? Maybe he changed his mind. And, you know, it, that's kind of, you can't join, if you can't beat him, join him type of thing. It was a smart thing yeah. to do on his behalf. And now he has a fan of Mojo Nixon, you know? That's right. And you were spot on with your appraisal of what Steve Bader's was going for with the disconnected album. So I think the, the dead boys were just sort of falling to pieces. They would lose a dead boy here and replace him, And then they'd lose another one there and cheetah Chrome can't feel his hands anymore. So he's not with us at the moment. And eventually the dead boys just sort of morphed into the Steve Bader's band, which is what they were by the time that they're playing these songs. But yeah, literally a focus on melodic power pop and um they used Rickenbacker guitars, which is it doesn't get more Tom Petty Tom Petty than Rickenbackers. That, that's why it just rang to me like that. And I, I what's curious to me, do you know who produced that record? What label it was on? Did Jimmy Iovine produce that by any chance? Or you know what I mean? Uh I think I don't know that it was that major of a release. It came out in nineteen eighty on Bomp Records. Bump, which I think was an independent uh, record label out here, led by Greg exactly Shaw, right. a man named Greg Shaw, who did a lot of like the '60s revivalist stuff, and obviously yep. was a uh, Doug Steve Bader's. Yep, that's right. And Steve was going for a little bit of a '60s revival yeah. rock and roll, like almost a girl group kind of thing. All those punk bands, they loved that girl group stuff. It's not the most obvious connection, but every, I mean, Misfits couldn't be more obvious. Um, Ramones couldn't be more obvious, and and clearly Steve as well. I think it's also like it. What happens is you get out there, you release a couple of punk records. It becomes your job. You know, your job is you play music, you go tour around, you get better at your instruments, you get better as a band, and you get better as a songwriter. And you start reaching out to your influences growing up, the Shirelles, you know, Phil Spector, the Wall of Sound, and you start trying, you know, emulate your heroes with this new flavor of, you call it punk rock, call it new way. Yep. All right, I got a few more of these I want to get through. We've you got it, for- you got it, you've got to be getting to, because I remember I got it for Christmas in 1980. Zenyatta Mandata from The Police has to be on this. Oh, I don't. Okay, wait. It might not have come out in December, but might have come out in November. But I got Zenyatta Mandata from The Police on Christmas 1980. Let's see. Zenyatta Mandata was released in October of 1980. All right. Well, it's still, that's still the fourth quarter. So, you know. Yeah, absolutely. There were so many things I wanted to include, and I just I wanted to I wanted to tow the the letter of the law on this. But yeah, featuring the hit singles "Don't Stand So Close to Me" and "The Do 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 Da 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 Da" lyrics by Bernie Taupin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. I just remember Sting had an English Beat T-shirt on. During the uh, Don't Stand So Close to Me video, I always thought that was so like submersive and cool. I'm like, wow, Sting is part of the punk rock scene, not knowing that he's really part of the punk rock scene. So, that's my- right. would that have, and that, that's an album that you would have listened to top to bottom. You like the whole thing when you're a kid, right? Zinjana Mandata? Yeah. Yeah, I, not, no, I was a singles guy. I wasn't an oh, okay. album guy. I'm not going to paint my retrospective history as being more interesting than it was. I only liked the singles. I listened to do 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 da 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 and don't stand so close. I think there's another one on there. It was like a, but uh, uh, yeah, no, I, I was not a. 
I was not an album cut guy. I liked the singles. I was a don't bore us, get to the chorus kind of guy. Yeah, I just want just because kids have poor taste, and once they go, oh, this is a band that I like. This is a band that looks cool on MTV. You can talk yourself into some pretty god awful stuff until you actually develop some taste. But th- th- it, all that tells me is that you you started off with with taste. Well, I just thought I should like the record. You know, at twelve years old, you're still trying to be like, yeah, I got that record, but you know, I, I like the singles only. You know, it took a while to develop into an album listener, and I really didn't get there, dude, until the hair metal. I started listening to albums top to bottom. Actually, punk rock albums I did because there's only so many of them. You know what I mean? And I really wanted to put that in my DNA and have the aesthetic of that on the outside. But I really didn't start listening to records top to bottom until I got into air metal. Well, yeah, you didn't want to sleep on track eight on a Dangerous Toys album, that's for sure. Hey, come on. If you haven't heard Britney Fox top to bottom, you haven't lived. Yeah, exactly. Some some liked teasing, pleasing, but I was more of a Queen of the Nile guy, personally. What, what about, hey man, I like feeling wish I was scared, but you, but you, uh, that's a great song. Scared is great. Bones in the gutter. Dangerous Toys had, had some moments. Don't Sporting get me started. Sporting a Woody. Sporting a Woody. Yeah, I had a t-shirt that had Sporting a Woody on it. Tell me you had the Jackal Me Off shirt. Jackal I'm never a Jackal shirt. guy. It's the greatest shirt of all time. If you weren't a Jackal guy or not, the shirt said Jackal Me Off. And like, yeah. look, that goes right into my kitty set you humor. I thought that was great. Yeah, it, 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 that scene was, it was underrated how clever those people were. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a lover, Jack <laughs> So even m- many hardcore Journey fans do not realize that in 1980, Journey released an album. And the reason why many to most do not know that is because for some weird reason, they're already in the Steve Perry phase and everything, they contributed a soundtrack to a Japanese film called Dream After Dream, which was the last time that Journey would dabble in straight-up prog rock. Wow. That seems so so out of left field and and a a left turn and way to... I have a screeching halt on momentum uh, on your career. I mean, it says here it was a Japanese import, so I don't know. Maybe the Yakuza got a hold of them and forced them yeah. to do this. <laughs> They've all got body tattoos now. If you look at the uh, shirt, <laughs> you, ever, you ever notice Steve Perry always wears long sleeves? <laughs> Jonathan Kane never takes a shirt off, y'all. <laughs> All right, I'll give you a little taste of this because this is ponderous. This just yeah, this, this is like it's a fifteen minute long song. I try try oh. to play find a part that sounds a bit like a song. <laughs> Let me guess. That was during a car chase, and at the end, a bridge. The car was going over slow mo over a bridge, like. I mean, like that. You know. Also, remember that sit down video game you used to drive? That sounds like the soundtrack you'd hear, like in the stereo. You know what I mean? Come on, dude. Yeah. I know. I'm not even going to bother. There's a song that I think they did make a bit of a single out of called Little Girl. He just goes, Little Girl, Little Girl. There you go. You've heard it now. I mean, like every song they did. They probably got 10 million bucks to do that, too. You know? Yeah, I don't know what the story is, but that is a historical curiosity that perhaps uh, that that's all it is. Parliament. That was released on import, Tully? Was that released domestically? It says here, it says, the only place I could find that was on YouTube. 
and it says it's it was Japanese CBS or Japanese Sony or whatever. So that's a, that is a, the deepest of deep cuts for a band that was as big as Journey was at that moment. Dream after dream. Parliament was just about self-destructing. They would not release another album for uh, in, until 20 years later. But in the meantime, Bootsy Collins, I think, took the lead and, and played many to most of the instruments on an album called Thrombipulation. And this is a uh, this is a representative track from this. I think this was uh, this is a single from Parliament, 1980. I mean, it's hard to not be happy. When Bootsy Collins is involved, it's hard not to have fun. And boy, they really had their lane, didn't they? That Bootsy Collins, what a great bass player, what a great showman. And I was just listening to a song of his, uh, I can't remember it was, but you know that song? I got my grabber down, knock me down to the dawn. I mean, it's such a great song. I heard like, two days ago and I loved it, but that the parliament doesn't even matter what song you're playing. They're the greatest live band. If you got to see, I never saw them live during the spaceship and the underwear and the diaper thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, but I'm all for it. I'm all for it. Yeah. I, I, I've tried to listen to albums and you go, I get it. This is different. And this is, um, this is, you know, white music had its psychedelic phase, and this is essentially psychedelic black music, and you can appreciate it as such. But as a song guy, the fact that, you, you, as you just pointed out, you're like, yeah, that could be any song they ever wrote. Yeah, that makes no, it, exactly. that makes them problematic exactly. as, as an album that you'd want to sit down and actually really groove on. But it it is what it is, and it deserves the uh, esteem that it enjoys. But also the birthplace and the, uh, you know, the 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 start of a Rick James, of a Gap band that was coming around the corner. Uh, you know, these bands learned how to uh, synchronize all these sounds and instead of making them 20 minute psychedelic soul jams, they'd make them three minutes super freaks. Yep. Now let's be honest, super freak would sound like, if it was 20 minutes long, would sound like anything came from Parliament, you know, and Funkadelic. That's right. And without that, we don't have Party All the Time from Eddie Murphy. That too. Yeah. Another classic, man. Yep. Uh, okay, let's do two more of these. Uh, this is not. I like the variety, Tully. I like what's happening. Good choice. Thank you. Well, so I'm not going to get to play Tavares. I don't know how important it is that we include Tavares. I, I am very partial to living in Los Angeles has made me partial to late 70s, early 80s radio soul R&B. There's this guy uh, Art LeBeau who's a legendary. Oh yeah, and he just plays dedic he's he's a hundred years old and he plays dedications to people who want to shout out their boyfriend half the time who is in jail. And yeah. This goes out to Sleepy from from Slow Eyes out of Pacoima. Can't wait can't wait for you to come home. Right. Yeah. We're holding it down, home. Exactly. My wife and I, the first Christmas we spent together, each got each other an Art LeBeau bobblehead. That, that, that's so, when you knew you picked the right one, right? That's when you know. That's when you know it's love. So I am very partial to that step, but we, we don't need to but do you know, that. Uh, that to bars, music, but I, totally, it just hits different yeah. when you're out here in Southern California. 
You know, yes. it, it sounds better in cars. We spent a lot of time in cars. You see the palm trees. You see all this. It just something, you know, we're, we're part of, it's in our DNA to be part of that, like, that, that Mel's drive-in, you know, American bandstand culture when all that was kind of happening. So it just feels different out here. I'm not surprised that you kind of picked up your love for that stuff out here. Art LeBeau or no Art LeBeau? Yeah, we went to an Art LeBeau concert, and I was like, how can it be $20 for tickets when there's like 30 classic bands that have had so many hits? And you go, oh, because none of them have a single original member. That's right. How you can, right. That's how you can do that. And there's one band, <laughs> and each guy just comes out, sings a song, and leaves. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. So we'll do two more. Let me see. I'd be very, very impressed and surprised if you can recognize this act because this sounds like this band had two heydays that sounded like nothing like one another, and this sounds like neither of them. I don't know it off the bat, but I like it. And I, whatever this guy had done before or after, I'm sure I'm a fan of. You might be. You might be. Now, I'm learning upon looking at this that that is on the Grown Ups original motion picture soundtrack. So somebody in the Happy Madison camp has a, a deeper understanding of classic power pop than I would have guessed. But after the album that featured What I Like About You... And before the, I hear the secret. I've got to say the romantics, man. I got, is that Wally singing? Wally Potter? Yeah, you, you tell me. I'll, I'll try to look it up. But, but, and before the, the second, the uh, uh, brush with uh, stardom. Secrets that you when keep. you're talking I in your sleep. Yep. Secrets that. So that there was a drummer who sang what I like about you, but Wally Palmer mm -hmm. with the jangly, jingly Rickenbacker still plays it to this day. Yep. Uh, he sang um, secrets that you keep. Yep. And remember rock, uh, uh, they have a song called Rock Me, uh, not Rock Me, uh, I, I can't remember right now, but it's, it's an, another song you'd know. But who is that singing then? It, it does not tell me on their Wikipedia, and I don't really know where to go. But it, does it say that's the Romantics? Or are, you ta are you bringing the singer up? Okay. Is that the Romantics? That's the Romantics. I'm looking at Wally Palmar, born Vladimir Palomarchuk, and... Who's the drummer? Tony something? Tony? Is that... Jimmy Marinos. Yeah, that might be it. Lead, might vocals, be it. lead vocals and drums. That's who yeah. we're looking for. That, that that was him. So I believe it was Jimmy. I don't think that was Wally singing right there when he just played for me. I'd have to look at a music video. I honestly yeah, don't know. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't know. But either way, I should have known that. I'm, I'm pissed at Sid Vader's. I'm pissed at those. Oh, right, in my, right in my scope. I do these shows, these like voices show, and Wally Palmer from the uh, – Romantics comes out all the time. And he's the greatest guy in the world. Yeah, I, I just, I'm, I'm angry at myself not knowing that. Uh, one more release that came out in December of 1980. This is an artist that we were speaking about the last time you and I spoke.
the artist that you and I discussed last time we spoke was not Elvis Costello. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, give me a little bit of UK guy? Well, yeah, of course, UK. And we uh, discussed last time how the project and associated projects for which he is best known essentially ruined his musical career. God, I, I, I you know, it's the holidays, pandemic. I know. A, a lot has happened in the last, last two weeks. That is before Band-Aid and Live oh, Aid. Oh, it's our friend Sir Bob Geldof. It's Sir Bob, St. Bob, and the band that put him in a place to be able to do Band-Aid and Live Aid in the first place, the Boomtown Rats off of uh, what album was? It doesn't can, you, can you tell me something? Though? I'm curious off that album. Uh, was uh, I Don't Like Mondays on it? Or, you know what I mean? Like, what, you know, because this record was propelling them into uh, Up All Night. Remember that? Ooh, ooh, staying Up All Night. Was that on that record? It's their... Their fourth album, Mondo Bongo, featured the hit single Banana Republic, which was number three on the UK singles chart, and the Elephant's Graveyard that we just enjoyed, which made it up to number 26. But do you see the track listing on that by any chance? I'm just curious, because because uh, remember I always tell you every time, K-Rock would play a healthy staple of you know of, of these bands, uh, for instance, Boomtown Rats, yeah. and like, Either I don't like Mondays or Up All Night. They would play uh, that might not have been hits uh, in uh, the U.S., but they were definitely hits on K Rock in Southern California. I don't like Mondays was from the preceding album that came out one year earlier. The Fine Art of gotcha. Surfacing. All right, well there you go. I mean, so it's fun to know you know less than you know. These are deep cuts, Mark. These are these are don't be you know, don't, don't, these are very, don't qualify these are very deep them for cuts. me, Tully. You know what I mean? You and this, this this dynamic here is built on being able to pull the deep references out. So I'll go back. I'll do my homework, and I'll be uh, I'll be prepared for next time. But if you ch- if 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 you cheat on January of 1981, we'll all know, and we'll think I will never it. ever cheat. I respect <laughs> the game too much. You know what I mean? <laughs> I respect it too much. And by the way, I don't want to know it all. And I like and I like learning too, which is fun. That's part of the trivia game, you know? No corked bats where you're concerned. No, no <laughs> pine tar, no corked bats, none of that crap. Pure no trivia, man. No George Brett where you were concerned. All right, well, thank you as always for your time. And uh, we'll do this again soon. In the meantime, happy holidays to you and yours. James, you tell me. I appreciate you, my friend. All the best to you. And hope to see you before 2021. But if I don't, you got my number. All right. At Mark underscore McGrath on Twitter. At Real Mark McGrath on Instagram. Yes. That's right. That's All it. Right, well, Hit me up, man. I love hearing from you guys. And I promise to get back to you because I'm good like that. Take care, bud. All right, my friend. 